Uh, how's everybody doing? Good, good. Uh, it's after dinner time, so I'm going to try to uh, not put you to sleep, because I know food can do that. Uh, but if you do fall asleep, just know that <clears throat> the Lord will judge you. It's His Word. Can we pray? <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, uh, God, and we are grateful uh, that you've given us your word. Father, we're grateful that uh, we don't have to stand up here and make stuff up. We don't have to come up here and give our best guesses or our best opinions of man's wisdom. Father, but we get to hear from you. So, God, we pray you'd speak to us, and uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, I want to begin uh, just by telling you that this is a, is a hard season for me. This is a hard time of the year, and don't be too worried. It's not anything too serious, but it's not easy either. Uh, every year around this same time, that me and millions of other Americans and people all over the world suffer through it in the months of July and August and September and October. Those are the four months of misery, also known as the NBA offseason. The, the season ended in June, uh, as it always does. And the hard thing about the season ending is right before the season ends during the whole playoffs, not only do you get basketball, not only do you get the best teams playing basketball, you get a game every night, sometimes several. And so you get into this pattern of just enjoying this, these incredible athletic feats every single night, and then with no notice, it's over. And then uh, basketball fans like me are forced to wonder, what am I supposed to do with my evenings now? What are we supposed to talk about when I see you? We had been talking about the game last night and who did what. And now at this point, we're forced to talk about the draft and offseason and what's going to happen next season. And we may have to, like, get to know each other, stuff like that. And it's just a really hard time of year. And one of the interesting things is, uh, not this season, but the season before, I don't want to talk about this last season because I wanted the Warriors to win and it didn't happen like that. So we'll go to the season before that when the Warriors did win. One of the interesting things is, um, LeBron James, if you don't know anything about basketball, one of the greatest players of all time, you know, and, and they ended up losing that series, even though LeBron James played uh, one of the best NBA final series ever in terms of his scoring, his rebounding, his assists, his everything. I mean, he led in all of those categories. It was an incredible feat. But the fact that they lost brought out all the LeBron James haters who said, see, he ain't nothing. Jordan would never let that happen. <laughs> but you're like, oh, but all these dudes got injured and he couldn't. They're like, so Jordan would have played all five positions at the same time. And my and it's like, yes, we know, but you're making him a man that he wasn't. No one can do that. And uh, so, so while I am a LeBron fan, I do think some of, the, uh, uh, some of the people who don't like him, they're right this time. Where if you want to win a championship, you know, people say, hey, he can't do it by himself. And I agree with that. If he really wanted to win a championship, he has to do it with a team. Because you can't play all five positions at the same time. And it's not enough for him just to be a good player. He has to have good players alongside him. And they have to actually play as a team. They got to have a collective team goal. They got to practice together. Uh, they have to game plan together. His individual stats don't matter if they don't win together. It all has to happen together because it's a team sport. And I want you to think of Christianity in a similar way. 
when we become believers in Jesus, we are often aware of how our individual identities change. You know, we understand that we go from darkness to light, that we go from, uh, you know, children of Satan to children of God. But what we don't think about very often is how our corporate identity changes. We're not just new people. We're people who found ourselves in a brand new family. Christianity is a team sport. And it's not a team sport like USA Swimming where you mostly do stuff together, but every now and then you do a few uh, with one another, but you mostly do it by yourself. No, Christianity is a basketball kind of team sport where we have to do everything together. And if a team wants to win a championship, they got to play as a team. And if we as believers in Jesus want to honor him in the world, we cannot be just a bunch of random individual Christians doing things on our own. We have to be a body. We have to be a family because that's the way that God has decided he's going to show off his glory in the world. So that's, that's what I want to drive home uh, tonight is that Christianity is a team sport with the common goal of Christ's likeness. And until we think about it that way, we're not going to be able to reach that final goal. So we may wonder, okay, so what do Christians, what do what, uh, believers have to do then as a team? I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Most of us know that uh, here in Ephesians 4, uh, in a lot of Paul letter, Paul's letters, there's this place where it takes a turn where he's mostly been, uh, for the beginning of the book, telling us what the good news of Jesus is, telling us what Christ has done on our behalf, and then he takes his turn where he, uh, where he begins to point to more practical things. So it's not like there's no more doctrine or there was no application earlier on, but it really starts to take this practical turn in chapter 4. He's told us these incredible things about what Christ has done, and listen to what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you has received. So as Paul makes this shift after he's given all this stuff, he's going to tell us something he, he needs us to do. He urges us, he exhorts us, he strongly implores us, right, to do something. He, he reminds us that he, he didn't tell us all that stuff so we could just feel smarter, we could feel proud, or we could say some stuff that we learned. Right? He didn't do it so we would feel smart and get proud. He gave us all of that so we would feel grateful and get to work because that's what all doctrines should do. He reminds us of his situation. He's a prisoner, and he wants us to live a life like he has worthy of the calling we've received. As a side note, some of us are always wondering, what is it that God has called me to do? That especially happens in seminary where we imagine that only senior pastors or famous people are the ones that are really called or just called to really important things, or that we have to wait for some kind of mystical call to make any decision. God, if you would have me do this, can you just make a frog jump right there right now? I'm going to give you one more chance, Lord. <laughs> it's clear in this text, the primary thing we've been called to, the kind of calling that all of us has received, that gospel call we've been called to, this relationship with God, this forgiveness of sins and to everlasting life. And Paul's going to tell us what this call demands of us now. Right? So since Christianity is a team sport, he's going to tell us how to respond together. Verse 2, he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in 
all. That's God's Word. And we're going to start there. And as we go, you may say, well, Tripp, what does this have to do with discipleship? Just know this beginning stuff lays the groundwork for us to understand that if Christianity is this team sport, how are we going to get to the common goal God has given us? The first thing we see in the text is we have to stick together. First thing, we got to stick together. When we hear stick together, you know, we may think uh, of friends sticking together. Or maybe the most common thing we think of is a relationship or a marriage. And when you begin to think about a relationship or a marriage sticking together, it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes they don't stick together, even though they're intended to. And why is that? Well, that's because life is hard. Relationships get broken because there's sin and there's conflict and there's pain and there's more sin and more conflict and pain. Marriage is hard and it takes work and unity in the church is the same way. There's conflict, there's pain, and there's hurt involved when it comes to God's church. So Paul is exhorting us how to stick together, how we accomplish that. So when we see those character traits, he points to there in verse 2 where he says, be humble and gentle and be patient. We probably think those are good character traits. Something that we would like to be a parent in our life as an individual who follows Jesus. But just as a reminder, Paul is not calling us towards those character traits in isolation. He's not just telling you to make sure you're humble and gentle when you're at home watching Netflix by yourself. He's talking to us about how we should interact with one another. These are not random character traits. This is a roadmap for how we're supposed to interact with one another in God's family. We know this one because of the kind of traits he's talking about, humility, gentleness. Those are things you do towards somebody. Not only that, he's writing to a church. But we also know because he modifies it at the end by saying, bearing with one another in love. This is about how we treat one another. So about the things he's calling us to, humility. Uh, Both at the time Paul wrote this and now, humility is obviously not a trait that's held up in our culture. Right? It seems lame to some people. It means a kind of lowliness. And and our culture uh, encourages us to assert ourselves above everyone else. Paul calls us to humble ourselves before each other. Calls us to gentleness, a a kind of meekness, not not harshly putting your desires before others, but considering theirs. And patience, we've already heard about that today. You know, you can just say putting up with other people's stuff. And Paul is calling us to this. Because even though our culture doesn't always value them, God does. And it's part of what it means uh, to stick together. Now, someone may say, why would we have to be exhorted towards these things? And it's obvious because we're not naturally humble and gentle and patient. We're naturally proud, harsh, and impatient. That's what we naturally lean towards. And those are the things that cause so much conflict among us. Our pride and our impatience and our harshness, and because we're sinners, it can be this never-ending cycle. You know how it is when somebody is arrogant and harsh with you? It's, it's rare that your very first response in your heart uh, is a desire to be uh, humble and gracious with them. When somebody does something to you, if they talk to you crazy, I don't know about you, but I got to talk myself off the ledge before I respond in a Christ-like way. Our first response is to respond with the same amount of arrogance and harshness that they just came at us with. And to some of us, you know, bearing with someone in love is completely foreign because we can be so quick to cut somebody off forever. I mean, somebody could just miss a lunch date with you one time and you're like, they're dead to me. (laughs) Done. We don't forgive them ever. 
Paul is instead calling for this kind of graciousness, this patience, this, this gentleness with one another that is necessary if we're going to stick together. People are going to do stuff to you. If there's any kind of real relationship in any way, there will be sin and conflict. And for those relationships to continue on, there has to be the spirit of humility and patience and gentleness. But often instead of bearing with someone in love, we want to stand over them in judgment, and that's not the way God has given us to stick together. If we're to stick together, we have to interact with each other with humility, patience, and gentleness. And this has special application when it comes to discipling, because if you've ever tried to walk along with another believer in Jesus and to help them grow, well, you know it requires a lot of humility. So if you're going to let somebody be in your life to help you think better about what it means to follow Jesus, you have to be humble enough to understand you don't know everything and then you can benefit from other people. If you're going to pour into somebody else and help them understand what it means to follow Jesus, if both of those things are happening in a relationship, it has to be done in a non-self-righteous way, in a, in a loving way, right? If that humility isn't there, there's going to be problems. We have to have patience, as we've already talked about today. It's going to take a long time. There has to be gentleness. These things have to be present uh, if discipling is going to be effective. And if our personal ministry isn't characterized by humility and gentleness and patience, then we're going to be growing deformed disciples because we're not going to be teaching them. You know, if our discipling was only passing on information so we could make professors and so we could make just good students, then maybe you wouldn't need to be humble and gentle and patient with them. But if what we're doing is more than transferring information, we're trying to make whole followers of Jesus who look like him in their entire lives, that even the way that you help them to interact with this Jesus should be done in humility and patience and gentleness. Somebody may ask why, you know, why are you saying stick together? Well, I said stick together, stay together, because I wanted to emphasize keeping the unity, not creating the unity, because that's what the text does. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He doesn't say create the unity. He says maintain it, and that's very different. So my wife and I got married seven years ago. We don't need to become one. We need to fight to stay one. And the same goes for the church. We've been made one. There's a big difference between building something from scratch and maintaining it. Here's an example. In uh, January of last year, I moved to Atlanta. I moved to the west end of Atlanta to help plant a new church. Me and my wife bought a house. And along with buying a house come all the joys of homeowning, such as stuff breaking, <laughs> such as stuff that your inspector, you paid him to catch, but he didn't catch. I just got to deal with that at another time. But stuff happens, and you have to deal with those joys. Right, so there's a lot of stuff to maintain, a lot of money to get spent, but this is just part of what it means to maintain a house, and even though it's difficult, it's fine. Now, if somebody wants to say, okay, you're going to move to this neighborhood, and you have to build your house. Well, this is an entirely different thing. I can't even put together bookshelves from Ikea. I'm definitely not going to be able to do that. <laughs> I don't know the first thing about building a house. I wouldn't even know where to start. But if you're telling me I can maintain what somebody else has built, well, it's a little easy to make steps toward that. As believers, if, if we had to create the unity in our churches within the body of Christ, we would have no idea where to start. It's hard for sinful people to unify around anything 
because sin is a divider. Sin doesn't unify, it only divides. Not only that, we come from different backgrounds with different preferences and different things that we, uh, that we prefer and different biases. How can we ever create any real lasting unity from scratch? We would probably do as good of a job as I would do trying to build a house from scratch. But the good news is God has not called us to build this unity from scratch. He's called us to maintain it. God has already put it in place with what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Christianity is, is a team sport, and our common goal is this Christ-likeness. God put the team together, and God has called us to fight to stay together. And that doesn't mean it's easy, but it does mean we have a pre-made unity that we're just trying to keep together in Christ. And so we're fighting not to let sin divide us anymore. Sin would have us hold sins against each other and fight. Sin wants us to grow bitter after every disagreement. Sin wants us to gossip and tear each other down, but God wants us to fight to remain one. So a question I want to ask you is, what kind of efforts are you making to maintain unity in your local church? Matter of fact, just think about the past two weeks. Is there anything that you've intentionally done to try to maintain the unity that God has given that body? Let me tell you, it takes absolutely no effort to be divisive. That happens pretty easily. That happens on accident. All you got to do is be offended by somebody and talk bad about them. We're very good at seeing issues with other people. You know, it takes a lot of effort is fighting for unity. That takes intentionality. That is never something that happens on accident. So if it's ever going to happen with you obeying this command to fight for that unity, then it has to be something that's intentional. Paul says, make every effort or be eager to do this or be zealous in this. And sometimes we have no zeal in this area because we're only zealous for things that seem amazing and sexy, like jumping off of planes in the jungle. He's like, I want to jump off a plane in the jungle. I want to kill some animals and take it to some missionaries and fly back home on a helicopter. That's not what most of us are called to do. Most of us are called to just be a part of a local church and fight to maintain unity and love people and follow Jesus. And if we can't be zealous about that simple everyday stuff, then we're not really zealous about Jesus in the first place. We just want some adventures. It is much harder to do the very simple things that you have to do every single day very consistently. It's much harder to do small things very consistently than it is to do a big thing one time. That's why that seems more sexy. It doesn't take much. What does take much? Doing small, mundane things over and over and over again because Jesus has called you to it. That takes effort. That takes zeal. That takes godliness. That takes courage. And that's what God has called us to. Look at verse 4. Pay attention to all the things we have in common. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. You see how many times he uses the word one, right? So many things that we have in common. We don't have many bodies and many spirits. We are one. And it would be a good thing for us as church leaders to remind our congregations of this truth that there are things about us that are different, but we have much more in common than we have different, right? That's why we say this unity already exists. We are one body, meaning this body, the body of Christ. We're all body parts of that body. One spirit, that same spirit of God dwells inside each and every one of us. That's a very deep bond that goes much deeper than having the same blood as somebody, having the same spirit of God dwell in you. 
that open your eyes to help you to see Jesus and helps you to follow him. We're called to that one hope. We're trusting in the same stuff. We get to have eternal life. We have the same Lord. That's Jesus. One faith. That's the truth central to the gospel. One baptism. We're baptized in the same spirit. We were all baptized as a profession of our faith. We have the same God and Father who made us and saved us and reigns over us. And this is a very deep bond that we have with each other. It's a beautiful, deep bond and one that we should fight to keep. Families have natural unity with with they share blood. We share something much deeper than that, right? We're going to be in eternity in the same place, worshiping the same Jesus forever. We've been resurrected from the grave by the same Savior. Our hearts have been captured by the same good news. We have much more in common than we have different. And that matters. The unity we're fighting to keep is not a shallow unity. It's not a worldly unity. Churches are not communities that gather around the kind of music they like. That's useless. Churches are not communities that gather around liking to be in the same building or just liking to be in the same place or just the same ethnicity. That unity is useless. That happens anywhere. Go to a concert. You can see a bunch of people who look alike, who like the same music. That has no power and it doesn't matter. The unity that we're fighting for is more than tolerating each other inside a building for a moment. We have the same spirit of God dwelling in us. That's a deep unity that God is calling for us not to divide. We're building around Jesus and we want to fight to maintain it. And I hope as church leaders, we don't assume that some of the ugly division that happens in the world can't happen within God's church. I mean, we see in Acts 6, we see some division across racial lines immediately right after, uh, right after Jesus is left and right after the Spirit begins to work uh, in God's church. My prayer is that we would put this vision of this incredible unity before our congregations in such a way that they would see the value of it, they'd see the beauty of it, so that they would be zealous and they would see it as something worth fighting for, something that's much bigger than our differences. And so when we say, when we say that what we have in common uh, is bigger than our differences, we don't use that as a reason to ignore our differences. Right? So we're not using that as a reason, fences, not to ever talk about race and ethnicity. Instead, we want to use it as a reason to talk about race and ethnicity so we can reshape the way that we think about it. This does not mean, oh, but we're all one in Christ, so don't ever think about anything that's different about any of us. Those issues have, don't matter at all. No, no. If something is really carrying the cultural conversation and there are people driving that conversation that are thinking about those things incorrectly and the Bible speaks about that clearly and often, it is not good discipleship to ignore it altogether. We would help to shape our disciples if we would proclaim God's Word and what He said about those issues and to help them think about that so that their following of Jesus doesn't end with singing songs on Sunday morning and saying, good sermon, Pastor. We wanted to make it into their hearts and the way they interact with one another and the unity that we have, same Lord, same faith, same baptism, same spirit, same body, same God and Father of all, that unity reshapes how we think about that issue. Proclaim it. It's good. It's good. So if Christianity is then a team sport, you know, we have to be on the same page to work towards that same goal. Let's look at verse 7 and see what else we're being called to. We've been called to stick together. What else? Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. 
What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. We're to stick together, number two, we're also to serve together. We're also to serve together. Many people, when they think of worthwhile acts of service, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, soup kitchens or mission trips, those kinds of things. And they're right to think of those things as worthwhile acts of service. But one of the traps we get caught up in is we think that the only kind of real service that believers can do is service to people outside of the family of God. If you're serving other Christians, you're wasting your time, that insular, isolated stuff. You need to serve people out there. But when Scripture, especially right here, is talking about the gifts that God has given us in order to serve, it's talking not only about serving others, but about serving one another, building one another up. That is a massive part of our calling as believers. And if the family of God is messed up because we never serve one another, what kind of family are we even trying to call non-believers into? God has called us to serve one another. Within this team sport, we have to get closer and work together as a team. Serving people outside the family while ignoring ourselves is like a doctor who cures cancer but doesn't ever take another look at his own tumor. It's foolish. God's called us to care for each other, for the health of the body that he's given us. And in verse 7, he, he takes a little bit of a departure that may surprise us after he's just talked about all those things we have in common, and he talks about our differences just a little bit. You think, why would he bring about differences? Isn't he undermining his point? And I'll just say really quickly, it's only a weak unity that can't survive any differences. But a substantial unity, the one like we have, means differences in ethnicity and age, how much money we make, any other kind of differences, right? The unity is stronger than that. So he says, uh, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned. And he's, he's referring to spiritual gifts. Jesus has given each of us graces and spiritual gifts, different kinds of them to different ones of us. Sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 12, 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. And we know they're all for the same purpose, for that common goal, building up the body towards Christ's likeness. So some of us may have gifts to preach and teach. Some of us have gifts of encouragement. Others have gifts of hospitality, all of them from the same spirit for the same purpose, to build up the body. But here's the thing. Even though God gives us those gifts, uh, gives us that diversity within our unity, our sinful hearts will still find ways to divide. We'll take those gifts Jesus has given us and begin to fight over who has the best gifts, and we'll begin to be envious because we didn't get that one. Which sounds silly, but you know how easy it is for the human heart to turn absolutely anything into a competition? If you don't believe me, you can come to my house and look at my four-year-old and my two-year-old. Anything can be a competition. Anything. Daddy, I want to get spanked too. It's like, no, you don't. <laughs> Just your sin is getting you in trouble right now, making bad decisions. Our human hearts can turn anything into a competition. One, one way I've seen this in my own heart, I can think of times that my heart has looked at the gifts of other people and wanted them for myself, even though we're on the same mission. I can even think of times I've been on tour with other rappers who are Christians who also want to spread the gospel, and I've seen their set while I'm waiting on mine, and I'm like, huh, just going to rock the crowd like that, huh? All right. I got something for you tomorrow night. 
right? It's like, what? Like we came here together to do the same thing. We planned this out. What are you doing? But it's the same thing within the body where Jesus has given us all gifts to build one another up, and somehow we turn that into a competition. Instead of just benefiting from our brother or sister's gifts, we, we get mad that we don't have those ones. What are we doing? And when that happens, what's being revealed in our heart is not only the sin of envy, but also the sin of unbelief, because not only do we envy them for those gifts, but because God is the one who gives them as he sees fit, we're showing our unbelief in that we don't believe God is wise enough to give them out correctly. Not only am I envious of you, but I'm saying, God, what are you doing? I should have got that one. And that's, and that's just where our sinful desire is to lift ourselves up instead of build the body up, crowd out any desire for God's glory above our own. We have to fight it. Jesus gave us the gifts. That should give us comfort. Jesus gave those. Don't be insecure and assume your gifts aren't good enough. Jesus gave you those. How insulting is it for someone to hand you a gift that you didn't deserve and that you didn't earn, and instead of saying thank you, you slap it out of their hands and say, I want what he had. Don't do that to Jesus. He's wise. He gave you that gift because you're the one who should serve the body with that gift. God gave us souls to build each other up. And as pastors and church leaders, one of the things that we want to do is we want to help equip the saints to use their gifts well. Here's what that does not mean. That does not mean telling everybody exactly how to use their gifts in every situation. People with gifts of hospitality that I don't have, so I'm like, no, here's what y'all need to do. Y'all need to make sure the lemonade is out at 8.30, right? By 8.34, you need to be shaking. Like, no, I'm not the one with those gifts. That's why I'm not doing it, right? That's one way actually to squelch members using their gifts for God's glory. But instead, I want to equip them with God's Word to help them understand the purpose of those gifts, how those gifts should be used, and whose power they should use those gifts, and what we're working towards to shape their mind, to renew their mind so that they can use those gifts for the spiritual purpose they were given to them for. That's what God has called me to. I can't do everything. I don't have all the gifts. I don't know why everyone should use all the gifts, but I do know the Jesus who gave them to us, and I know why he gave them to us. And I want to help our members understand that, and I want to encourage you to do the same. It's one of the ways we get to disciple one another with the gifts we have, and not just with gifts of teaching. You know, there's some of us who have special gifts in certain areas. So, you know, if you have a special gift of hospitality, but all Christians are called to hospitality, one way you can disciple others is helping them to be more hospitable. Those who don't have a gift of hospitality, showing them how they can obey Jesus with their own hospitality. We want to think about how to use our gifts to help build up the body, not only in just serving others, but also in teaching others how to do those things better. Verse 8, Paul says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. This is Paul quoting Psalm 68. It sounds strange. There's a lot of up and down ascending and descending. The reason he picks this up, he uses it in a kind of strange way. 
And I don't think it's even super clear exactly how he's using it. Everyone doesn't agree on why. But the most convincing argument to me seems that uh, when Psalm 68, 18 talks about taking captives, including is taking these captives for the sake of giving them as gifts. So if that's true, then Paul means God takes captives. He makes them his and then gives them as gifts to his people so that he can work among his people. And what we do know for sure is that Paul thinks Jesus is the fulfillment of this verse, him descending to earth, becoming a man, ascending back after his resurrection and giving gifts to his people. And for a second, let's just take a second to marvel at the kind of gracious Lord that we have, who's rich in grace and mercy, who delights in giving gifts to his people as if saving our souls wasn't enough. As if telling us to build each other up wasn't enough, he gave us gifts so we could do it. And those gifts are not only the spiritual gifts of hospitality and teaching, but also specific people. Ephesians 4, let's look at verse 11, and he gave apostles, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So Paul shifts to some very unique gifts Christ has given to his church, these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers those specific people who laid the foundation of our faith. If we think about these evangelists and apostles and prophets, if, if God hadn't sent them to lay this foundation, we would have no word to read. We wouldn't understand the faith whatsoever. We wouldn't be Christians because these apostles wouldn't have gone out with the gospel. And, and I think he's talking about that foundational work, like he talks about in chapters 2 and 3. God gave those gifts for the building up of his body. And he says... It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And we know that's the purpose of any and every gift that God gives, to equip the saints. That's the call of pastors and church leaders, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, not to do all the ministry. And we know that, but sometimes we do stuff to get in the way. We know we can't possibly do all the ministry and disciple all the people and counsel all the people, but we still try to sometimes. We do some things that get in our own way. A few ways that we get in our own way with that as church leaders. We micromanage people. Never give them an opportunity to actually lead and do something. Hey, 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 did you have a Bible study? Did you ask me about that? You need to make sure you talk to me the next time you read the Bible publicly. Stop. Let people read. That's what they're supposed to be doing. You're to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not micromanage every ounce of ministry that happens. Right? Teach them how to study the Word so they can study the Word together. We try to hold on to all authority, make every decision by ourselves, even withholding the authority that God has given local churches and Scripture and acting like all of it rests on us. We're getting in the way of the saints actually doing the work of the ministry because we want to do it all ourselves. Often, we, uh, one of the things we do to get us in our way, we teach Scripture, but we don't teach people how to study Scripture. So, they're forever dependent on us. So, they can't do any work of the ministry because you're the only one who can do it because you're the only one who knows how to read Scripture. It's good to teach Scripture. You also have to teach people how to study Scripture, teach in a way that allows them to understand that. We can over-program where people don't have time for any ministry because they have 14 ministries to sign up for. We have people who haven't spent time with another person in two years because they've been serving with the vacuum ministry. It's like, <laughs> look, I'll deal with some crumbs if some people get saved. Right? We, we just over-program. It's a program for everything. It's like some stuff doesn't, and some programs just need to die. There was a lady who started that 40 years ago, and you're trying to keep it alive, and it ain't serving nobody. 
We over-program and people don't have to. If we have something, an event at the church every night of the week, people are never spending time with anybody or having any relationships because we so over-programmed and over-evented people, there's no time for any people ministry. All people have time to do is show up at stuff that you planned. And when we do that, we get in our own way of equipping saints for the work of the ministry, and we ensure that we're the only ones who have the time and energy to do any work of the ministry. Let's equip the saints and give them space to do ministry. I have other things, but we should keep going. Uh, One of my favorite things to hear happening in our church is a situation that I hear about where somebody's struggling with something or needs encouragement or needs to be rebuked, and I'm hearing about it late, so I haven't had a chance to do that yet, but there are believers within the congregation who've taken seriously what God has called them to do, and they've already had conversations. I love to hear that kind of stuff because that's what God has called for to happen within our churches, to disciple one another. Right, the saints are doing the work of the ministry. And when I think back in my life of the most significant seasons of growth, it's been saints doing this. Men who've poured into my life, every significant season of growth in my life has been God specifically, not only growing me in the Word, but sending me specific men who would love me and spend time with me. You know, I can think of five or six off the top of my head. God has been so gracious and good to me, and He doesn't always do that for all of us in exactly the same way. So we may not be able to look back and say, man, look at all these people, but we can be those people for others, right? God has called you, the saints, to do the work of the ministry, and those of us who are leaders to equip the saints to do it. We're to stick together. We're to serve together. The last thing is the goal of it all. Number three, we're to grow together. Discipleship is helping one another to grow. If it's our following of Jesus, helping one another to do that, we're to do that together. And we too often think of spiritual growth as this individual thing that happens by yourself only. The only time growth happens is by yourself in your prayer closet with soft Michael W. Smith songs playing. That's not the only time you can grow. We're to grow together. No shade to Michael W. Smith. None. And this is the common goal. We're working together, that growing together. And so real quick, I don't want it to sound like I'm belittling belittling the importance of individual growth. Do not go home like, I ain't even got to try to grow no more. Trip Lee said it. I didn't say that. And this is recorded just in case you try to lie on me. You should still (laughs) try to grow as an individual, but God has called us to grow together corporately. Now, of course, one part of the body could grow stronger than others. This is like dudes who skip leg day and they're like triangles, they're real swollen on top and real skinny on bottom. That can happen. One arm could grow much stronger than others. That's, of course, possible. But the danger becomes when the arm decides to amputate itself because it thinks it's better off without the rest of the body. I'm so strong, I don't need them. Not only is that harmful to the body because it's missing an important part that allows it to function, it's also harmful to itself because it'll rot away and die. We don't need any strong arms trying to run around by themselves. We need strong arms who are strong for the sake of the entire body becoming strong. We're to grow together, not just individually. It does us no good to be really strong and separated from the body. More details about what this building up should look like. Verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
Basically, you know, he's saying until we all reach the unity in the faith, you know, part of the concept here is that there's no man left behind. This unity in the faith is this unity in the once-for-all faith delivered to the saints, that common set of beliefs that we have, our knowledge in the Son of God, our understanding who Christ is. And he's saying we need to all grow in that together, not leaving one another behind. And we need to grab a hold of what Jesus purchased for us until we reach that maturity, until we look like him, until we love like him, until we fight for justice like him, until we're one and undivided like him. That is our goal. That's what we're working towards with one another, and that's what God will eventually accomplish. And until he does, we fight. And we, again, have to hold this vision up before our congregation so they can see the attractiveness of this mature manhood in Christ that we can achieve together. Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Scriptures are always using this maturity language in the sense of uh, like physical maturity too. And when you think about, uh, you know, an infant or a baby, you know, sometimes I'll think, man, their life is pretty easy. They don't do nothing. They just eat when I hand them something. They get rid of it. And they sit around. If they're not feeling good, they can just scream until somebody gets annoyed enough to help them no matter what time it is. So sometimes I think, man, that life seems easy. But in other ways, I think it has to be so traumatic because, every, because they don't know nothing. Like, literally, they don't know nothing. I have kids. I can tell you this. They don't know nothing. <laughs> Everything seems so traumatic because they don't have context for anything. Like, a, the first time a fly flew near my son's head, he thought it was over. <laughs> he thought he was going to die. It was just buzzing real close to him. He didn't know what that was. That's traumatic. This is why they lose their minds over everything. They think it's the end of the world because they actually don't know. Not only that, you can convince them of anything because they don't have any context to compare it to. So one time, you know, my son used to be afraid of the sun. He thought it was going to get him. And then we went outside and it was, it was like, Mommy, where's the sun? She said, oh, the sun is sleeping. Thought it was cute. But then my son begins to think the sun is a man who needs rest sometimes at night. And he thinks that's what the sun is because he doesn't know anything. And in the same way that we could tell him anything and he would believe anything, he's saying this is what it's like when we as a body of Christ don't build one another up to maturity. We don't know what God has said if we don't know. And we can fall for anything. I mean, this is the sad thing that we've seen happen with so many churches where we look up and we say, what happened to the gospel that used to be preached there? What happened to the Christ that was lifted up? When did they start thinking that pursuing money and physical health was more valuable than the pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God? Who convinced them to trade that in? The way that we fight against that, it's not just by going after preachers. It's by building one another up in such a way that when someone comes in talking that mess, we say, I know that's not what my God said. That's not what my Bible says. We've been building each other up. We're not infants around here. We have been building one another up to maturity, and we know that's from Satan. But with immaturity comes naiveness. Comes that being tossed to and fro. It's not just your pastor's job to mature your church. It's your job too. It's all of our jobs. And it's a privilege to get to take part in it. Verse 15, he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, 
We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Right? Speaking the truth in love. That's the antidote to immaturity is speaking the truth in love. If the Word of God is what matures us, then of course the antidote to being immature is speaking the truth in love with one another. Like we were talking about earlier, the Word just reverberating around the congregation. That's what we do. We speak the truth to one another. And of course, experience grows us. Serving together grows us. But that only happens as all of those things are shaped and framed and interpreted by what God has already said. And that's where so much of our equipment as pastors comes in, proclaiming the Word of God. Brother, you don't have anything good to say that's going to change someone's heart and impact their eternity. The best thing you can do is tell them what God already said. That's what changes hearts. That's what gives comfort. That's what gives encouragement. That's what saves lives. God's Word, not yours. Speaking the truth in love, we equip the saints to do that. And, of course, you can speak the truth in an unloving way and in sinful ways. We want to speak it in love. That means it's gracious and timely and caring. Speaking the truth ungraciously at the wrong time and in uncaring ways is not the same thing. And as we do that, our body becomes more like Jesus in every respect. And he points to Jesus being the head. Jesus is our leader. He gives the orders, right? The brain is the most important part of our body. It's the, it's the control center right? It tells everything what to do. And when the messages don't make their way, various parts of the body go wrong. Same thing, right? Jesus is the head. And the only hope we have to work properly is to listen to Him, right? To hear His message and to spread it around. But all of us have to do our part as parts of the body. So, this means one-on-one discipling is very good with just you and another person. That's very good. But do not think that that's the sum total of what discipleship is. That's one way it happens. That's a great way that it happens, but this is a community project building one another up. And I want to remind my pastor and leader friends, um, again, it says that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the body. Brother, you are not the head of that body God has given you oversight of. If you ever fool yourself for a second and you think you're the head of that church, your messaging is what matters. Your direction is what matters primarily. Brother, please remember Jesus is the head of that church. Do not try to usurp his authority. That's a dangerous thing to do, dangerous for you and for those sheep. If, if we as church leaders were a part of the body, um, I don't think it would be, it's not the head, maybe with the, the lungs, right? So if, if oxygen then would be like God's Word that needs to go to every part of the body in order for it to work properly, then our job as the lungs is to pump that oxygen to every part of the body, right? So what we want to do, we want to open God's Word, we want to speak it in every single direction so that as it gets to every single part of the body, they're able to work properly and work with one another and speak the truth and love to one another and build one another up so that that body can be healthy. But brother, you are not the head. You're only there to pump oxygen. That's the only thing we're there to do. And then to model it, to faithfully serve as a part of the body that we are uh, for the building up of the church. The building up of the church. Without this diversity of gifts and, and service, Right? We wouldn't all be needed. God has given that diversity so that we are all needed and so that He can get the glory for all of that. So, 
Christianity is this team sport, this discipleship, this following Jesus. It's a community thing, and the common goal is that maturity in Christ. So we have to stick together, and we have to serve together, and we have to grow together. I want to close uh, by reading this quote uh, because, you know, I have a lot of friends who I try to talk to about doing this, right, linking arms with the body, not trying to be a body part running around on their own. And they'll point to all the church hurt, all the difficult situations, all the bad churches, uh, experiences that they've had, and I understand those and uh, want to talk through those and and wrestle through the wounds that come with that. But uh, this quote, I think, says it well, that there's nobody who doesn't have problems with the church because there is sin in the church, but there is no other place to be a Christian. Yeah, there's problems in the church. There's sin in church because there are sinners there. But there's no other place to be a Christian. That's where God has called our Christianity to be lived out, not as one body part by ourselves, but with one another, building one another up in love to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you again to thank you for your word. God, you've been so good to speak to us. Uh, we're so grateful for it. Father, help us to obey it. God, help us to be passionate about what you're passionate about, God. And the goal of our maturity, all this building one another up, it's not uh, just to try to be mature for the sake of being mature, God. We want to do it to your glory. Father, we want to speak as those who speak the oracles of God. We want to serve as those who serve in your power and strength so that in all things you'll be glorified. To you belong glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen.